0: Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. We are starting a new series today, as Taylor said, Relationships in Tension. We're going to spend the entire month of February looking at the different relationships that intersect our lives, and and how they kind of push and pull, where we rub up against them, and what it looks like for us to be a people that engage those relationships well, that actually spend time and energy and effort navigating relationships well. Because as we spent January doing, we are a people that believe in relationships. We believe in face-to-face conversation. We believe in coming together, of bringing people together from diverse backgrounds and spiritual walks and places. And we can't really do that very well if we're constantly at war, constantly battling, constantly in tension with others. And so we wanted to spend the month of February, which is typically a relationship month, thanks to Hallmark and the celebration of St. Valentine, we wanted to spend some time pushing into that, leaning into that, and being a people that are really intersecting relationships well within our world and within our community. And so today, we're starting right off with a bang, red versus blue how to deal with the disunity in our political discourse, what it's going to look like for us to be a people that engage that and jump into that full bore. So as we jump into what for many is sometimes a sensitive topic, let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time that we have to gather together to lift our voices to you, to center ourselves, our weeks, our lives, who we are, our very being around you. And have you not only influence us, but transform us and change us into the likeness of your Son. Father, today, as we take a look at this relationship or these pockets of relationships or these pools of relationships that that we all inhabit, Father, we pray that you would grant us wisdom to know how to respond, to know how to talk, to know how to communicate, but also grace, extra, extra, extra amounts of grace in our conversations, that they may be seasoned with salt, that they may be seasoned with your love, with your mercy, and with your grace. So, Father, as we dive into these things today, guide us, shape us, mold us, and push us out into this world in those sorts of ways. Father, it's in your Son's name that we pray these things. Amen. Have you ever found yourself in an internet conversation on politics. Maybe it's not just a random internet conversation, but maybe, maybe you've actually dove deep into the comment section on a newspaper article. There is a special kind of vitriol that happens in the newspaper comments feed. I mean, the way in which people interact with each other the way in which people yell at each other complete strangers railing on each other and and it's always fun to see the relationships that get forged in that space, that all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're on my side, and so they they link that other person in the comment on the newspaper article so that they then have a two-on-one or a five-on-one sort of situation, and you just see it all pile on them. And sometimes, if you're the one that agrees with the mob, you're like, yeah, get them. And you get so excited. You're like, hmm, that's a good argument. I'm not getting in this, but that's a good argument. And you're like, woo, I'm going to store that one away for later, for that time that I have that conversation with my uncle. Oh, dang, it's going to be good. right? So we start to file away some of these arguments, and we hold them back. And Internet conversations are fun. But it's also really interesting when it happens on Facebook, because then it's usually with people that you know. And not only is it with people that you know, but you start to see like some things about the people that you thought you knew. And you're like, oh, you believe what now? You, you think what about that? Oh, we're going to have a talk. And your fingers start moving at light speed. You're like, and you just start to spew all of the facts, all of the rhetoric, all the things that you can, not only to put them in a corner, but to envelop them and surround them with shame, right? I will shame you. I will make you feel my pain. I will make you feel the rage. And we wrap it around them like these arms that are not of love, but of putting them in the sleeper hold, right? Like, ah, oh, you can't get out of this. It's amazing to see what happens in the comments section. I don't know if you've ever been in these conversations before. I have. <laughs> I've jumped headlong into conversations about guns, and gun rights, and whether or not it's a good thing for people to have so many guns, and what types of guns they should have, and, and how it all filters out and plays out. I've had so many conversations, like theological conversations, that wrap, wrap around and revolve around guns and their place and their purpose and their point. And I too have tried to put people in the sleeper hold. I too have tried to wrap my arms around them in such a way that it just shames them, it puts them in a corner, it locks them away in this little closet so that they just can't escape. But it's not just guns, it's capital punishment, it's immigration, it's the president and his moral compass or his moral code or the way in which he interacts with people online on Twitter. It's all of the great debates that we have in our culture and in our society. What's interesting is that I've also been on the receiving end of death threats, thanks to my comments to people about guns especially, that all of a sudden you get a little special personal message, I can't wait for the next time that you travel, because then I'll show you how important guns are to the safety of your family. Oh. Great. Block, but first you save it. You save a screenshot of it, right? And and you block the person, and then you ship it off to the police. And you're like, sorry, we can't do anything. We can't do anything about that. It's online vitriol. Great. Woo! Awesome. Thanks. Yay! It's wonderful how our culture and society deals with these sorts of things. Not only have I been the recipient of wonderful death threats as a result of my online presence and conversations on Facebook, but I've actually lost friends. A a guy who stood up in my wedding, was one of my groomsmen, no longer wanted to be friends with me because not on my position, but my approach to abortion, that that I, I... I wanted to see less abortion take place. And he was like, that's not enough. That's not good enough. We can't be friends anymore. Whoa, what? Like, you've got to shift all the way over into that camp. You have to be completely surrounded in that framework, in that that space. You have to have total agreement. There's no wiggle room. There's no opportunity for different sorts of approaches on how to tackle an issue that is as complex and complicated as that. I, I, I don't know if you know this or not, so I'll tell you, but starting a church is a really fascinating endeavor, mainly because you spend a lot of time fundraising. I, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but Trevor is fully fundraised for this, for this role that he does here, and so am I. I. I spent a good two and a half, three years traveling all over God's green earth, trying to get churches to come alongside to fund my salary, individuals, family, friends, people all over the place to fund me, and then also to fund what we do here in this space. It's a really interesting role, and it's actually kind of tenuous because when you start to talk about political things, such as like guns especially, again, I hailed from the Midwest before moving out here. And so guns are actually a really important thing, not just for personal safety, but also for hunting. Like it's, it's a complex issue. There's, there's all sorts of different things about it. But when you start talking about these things, I had a church literally say to me, man, we love you and we love everything that you're talking about. Like in terms of like this church, what it is that you wanna do in Seattle, this vision. Like we are behind that 100% but your view on guns? Like, we, we just can't support you because of that. What? Are you serious? Like, you buy into the vision and you, you believe that God is actually sending us into this place to do these sorts of things and you're all in on that, but the litmus test is guns? Whoa. Okay, then. Thanks. But we'll pray for you. Oh, I mean, thanks. I don't know what you're going to pray for me. <laughs> right? Like, are you going to pray that my mind changes? About guns, about these sorts of things that are deep-held convictions and beliefs. Like, oh my goodness. Like, These are the sorts of disunity or the, these disunifying sorts of conversations that we find ourselves up against. We have moved, we have shifted in our Culture and in our country into this age of sort of outrage. Again, I I tell you, I have some really, I I used to, I've stepped back mainly since the church decided they didn't want to support us because of political views. I've stepped into some really funny ones. This one might be my favorite of of recent past. Oh, maybe not yet. This one, (laughs) this guy. He, he, this was an immigration conversation. The vast majority, he says, the vast majority of kids are sent here alone. These are not U.S. citizens. These are actually invaders. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So I responded, like, I'm really, I was really snarky. I wasn't, I wasn't having a bad day. So you're basically saying that we're being invaded by children and that they are single-handedly destroying our country. Got it. And he said, no, their parents are. Blank. But you just said the children were alone and then called them invaders. Read what you wrote again slowly. Right? Like, these are not the best ways to interact with people online. This was me wrapping the arms of shame around this guy. Okay, so like, there are more than uh, 70 replies. These are just the 28 Um, because there's way more below, but then he starts to call me Satan, which was really great, especially after I said, I know that love your neighbor thing is really hard. Yeah, I wasn't doing that either in this space, just so you know. I wasn't really trying to love him. I was trying to shove him into a corner, try to shame him so that everyone that was watching along this comment thread would feel the shame as well and be like, yeah, we're not going to walk into that, right? And it worked, because it was just the two of us going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But we live in this age of outrage. And I am not immune to the outrage, right? I am not immune to what I see as idiocy and stupidity out of people. Like, I, 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 I'm the first to admit, like, oh my goodness, there is an idiot on my Facebook page, and we're going to have to deal with him, and we're going to deal with him. Good. And here it comes, right? And then you just unleash and Man, it is not a healthy space. It's not a healthy place. It has not been good. We live in the age of outrage where one small thing, one small infraction can then steamroll into a gigantic, huge ball of anger and rage unleashed on people. Twitter is probably the best place for that at the moment. I mean, I feel like Facebook has cleaned up just a little bit. Not because Facebook has done it, but because the users are kind of like, I'm sick of hearing what my family thinks about these things, right? And so we just kind of back off a little bit. But Twitter, family isn't on Twitter, so here we go! woo and it just gets gross because it's stranger for stranger. It's it's red versus blue. It's it's just progressive versus liberal, right? Like even in those spheres, like it, we separate ourselves more and more and more. Ed Stetzer wrote in his book, uh, *The Age of Christians in an Age of Outrage*. He said, at its core. Cultural division breeds anger by polarizing communities and teaching us to yell past one another rather than engage. That was my conversation on the immigration. I was yelling past him. I had no interest in trying to figure out what he believed. I had no interest in trying to figure out what he was trying to communicate with invader children. I I just saw that as absolutely a non-starter, and I pushed right past. I blew over and just yelled at him, right? To which he responded in kind, and calling me Satan. It was the first time I'd ever been called Satan in my life. I was like, "Woo! that's amazing. Like, get behind me, Satan, right? Like, and it just kept going. Like every time he referenced me, it was just Satan, comma, right? Like he was writing a letter to Satan. He was writing a letter to me. It was a personal letter. It was wonderful, right? Like Satan, mm, awesome, thank you, right? But we push past, we yell past people with no sense or ability to have a thoughtful, engaging sorts of conversation. Harold Isaacs is a professor at MIT, and he did a interesting, an interesting study on group identity and politics, and he references this study that was done in the United Kingdom, and I want to read some of this here because it's really fascinating. He says this about political, political change and group identities. He said, more than even demonizing other people, the creation of groups can lead us to excuse the behavior of those in our own camp. So in one study out of, the, out of the United Kingdom, researchers observed how university students responded to smelling sweaty t-shirts, some of which displayed their university's logo and others which carried the logo of a different university. In the In two studies that measured both self-reported disgust and observable metrics of disgust, the researchers noticed that the students were noticeably less put off by the smell of those t-shirts they thought had been worn by students from their own university. Students showed a willingness to put up with their sweaty classmates because they were on their team. Yet those students showed reluctance to extend the same grace toward outsiders. In other words, whether we view people as being on our team has a direct bearing on how we perceive and interact with them, regardless of whether their behavior is the same as those in other groups. So you're wearing a Georgia sweatshirt, and it stinks. Somebody from Alabama going to be ticked, right? You're wearing a UW sweatshirt, And it stinks, somebody from (laughs) Wazoo is going to be upset and frustrated with you because you stink more than their friend that is standing right next to them, right? In the same Wazoo sweatshirt. Like it's it's fascinating, this grouping that we have that we want to be identified with a team, that we want to be grouped like this sort of in-grouping sort of thing. In 2017, Pew did this research poll where they said 86% of Americans say conflicts between Democrats and Republicans are either strong or very strong. 86% of us agree that there's a massive division that's taking place. It's either strong or very strong between blue and red. Between red and blue. Whomever you want to put first, it's, not, it's, just, it's just how it is, right? Amy Chua is a professor at Yale Law School, and she said this, Everyone feels their group is being attacked, bullied, persecuted, discriminated against. Everyone, no matter what group you're in, whether you're wearing the Wazoo sweatshirt or the Washington sweatshirt, everybody feels discriminated against at some point. Whether you find yourself to be a Christian or a Jewish person, you feel discriminated against. Whether you feel to be a Muslim or a Christian person, you feel discriminated against in equal levels, in equal places, in equal strains. There's no difference. We all feel this sort of attack being levied at us whether you find yourself to be a white, male, cisgendered, Christian individual, like all of a sudden then you feel way more attacked than everyone else. But the reality is you're not. No one is more attacked than anyone else at this point. Everyone feeling that way. Everyone feels it. Everyone feels that level of attack coming down upon our shoulders. What's really fascinating is Seattle. Seattle is a really fascinating place, mainly because we truly live in the third largest bubble, percentage wise. We live in the third largest bubble, percentage wise. It's funny because I find myself oftentimes walking around the city and I'll see people with various hats on, and some of them are the MAGA hats. And you're like, what? I see this in Seattle. Put a pin in that. Hold on to that just a second. And then my friend Joel, who's an artist, put this on Twitter the other day. This is a great image. Oh, the next one. <laughs> great image, right? The MAGA hat on fire, like being rotted out kind of thing. Like we see these sort of images and our visceral response is like, yeah! Or, ooh. Depending on what side of the aisle you sit on, right? Like we live in this third largest bubble to where the majority of us would see that, and by majority you'll see what I mean in a second, to where that is a rallying cry, to where that is a good thing, to where that is exciting and visceral, as you just see the flames and you're like, yes. Mm." But the Seattle Times did a research poll. They looked at all of the voting. These are the lowest percentage of Trump voters. Do you see where Seattle is? We live in the third largest bubble in the country. The only two cities in this country that voted for Trump less than us, Washington, D.C., which is funny in an ironic sort of way, and Detroit. We live in the third largest blue bubble in the country. The third largest blue bubble in the country. Like, San Francisco is known as like the bastion, right, of liberalism. We beat them. (laughs) Chicago, you know, and their votes for Kennedy, right? We beat them. Philly, that makes sense. L.A., Los Angeles. Almost a quarter of the people voted for Trump in Los Angeles. This is the city, not the county, right? Like, this is fascinating. Like, (laughs) we voted for Trump three times less than L.A., on percentage, like, beat L.A., right? Like, that's, that's how that works. And we did it. This is our reality. This is the culture in which we inhabit as a, as a church and as a people and as a community. We live in this, the third largest bubble. I want to say that again because it still blows my mind. The third largest bubble in the country. It's funny because when I walk around and I see the MAGA hats on people in our city, it's not like a trigger. It's not like a, oh, but it's like a, really? You wear that around here? Who do you think you are? Like, oh my goodness. And then I get really close and I notice it says things like this. Make America read again. (laughs) Or make America kind again. Or make America gay again. I've even seen make America Mexico again, make America Britain again, make, <laughs> make Donald Trump again. Like, all of these have been hats, but my favorite, my absolute favorite that I've ever seen is make carne asada burritos $5 again. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> oh, someday. Some, no, it's not going to happen. But we might have a taco truck on every corner, right? It might happen. I say all this to let us know that this is the city in which we inhabit. That there's only 8% of people in this city that voted for Trump. Only 8%. It's really small. And so some of you might be sitting there thinking like, why are we really having this conversation between red and blue? Like, why, why is that really a battle here? Because I don't see it in this city. Like, it, 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 the only place I really see it is online or with my family around the Thanksgiving table because that was rough, right? Or, or, or just in conversations, like, I, I went to go visit my parents and all my dad wanted to talk about was Donald Trump and how amazing he is. Oh, stabbed me in the eye with a fork, right? Like, these are the sorts of things where it's like, why does that matter here in Seattle? 8%. 8% of voters... 8% of our city voted for Trump. That, that roughly calculates to about 50,000 people. That's, that's larger than some of our hometowns. That's larger than some of our universities that we went to, some of our colleges. Like it's, that's a large number, about 50,000 people decided that they wanted to vote for that. And we probably rubbed shoulders with them more than we recognize, more than we realize Especially if you work at a large corporation to where some people move in from, or or, uh, not, not just move in, but commute into the city. Because once you get outside of Seattle, that percentage starts to climb rapidly. We find ourselves rubbing shoulders with a lot of people that have very different political views than us. And so what do we do about that? How do we engage with that? And it's, it's not just the people that are around us, but yes, it too is friends and family. How do we engage with them? How do we spend time with them? Tim Keller, at a lecture at Princeton Theological Seminary, said, you can't disagree with somebody by just beating them from the outside. You have to come into their framework You critique them from inside their own framework. You don't critique them for not having your framework. You have to actually step outside of yourself and begin to enter into what it is that they think. How it is that they understand the world around them. And then begin to understand more and more about who they are and why it is that they think the things that they think. This is not a new thing. This is engaging with people that disagree with us is not a new thing. I don't know if you know this or not, but every so often this really piques my curiosity and my interest when I start to read the story of the disciples. Right? In Matthew chapter 9, it's perhaps one of the more interesting of the like, disciple calling stories of, of Jesus leaning into disciples and saying, hey, come follow me. Because in Matthew chapter 9, he steps in and he calls a tax collector to come follow him. What's super fascinating about this tax collector is that he is a tax collector. Which means he actually worked for the Roman government. At this point in time, Israel was completely oppressed. They were run. They were overshadowed by Rome. Like like Rome ruled everything and Rome ruled all of Israel. And here is this man whom his friends, his family, the people around him saw as a complete traitor. They saw him as the man that was doing nothing but robbing the widows, robbing the poor, not only to line his own pockets, but to support the financial structure of this government that was oppressing people, that was killing people, that was enslaving people left and right. And here is Matthew this tax collector that Jesus has now called to follow him. I I, kind of wonder, like one of the great things about scripture is you can read in between the lines because it doesn't give you a ton. You can start to think about some of the things that were taking place in the story. And I kind of wonder if tax collectors who were Jewish people, they worked They were were not only Jewish culturally, but they attempted their best to live out the Jewish faith within their world, but they found themselves working for Rome. I kind of wonder if Matthew would be one of the men that we see walking around with like a Make Israel Great Again hat back in the day if he's that kind of a guy, where he believes that working for Rome in this way is what was going to save and rescue Israel, was going to put them back on the map and make them into this great superpower once again. And that's why he was working for Rome the way that he was, to just make Israel great again. But the interesting thing, when Jesus calls him in to follow him, to be one of his disciples, he got enveloped and enfolded into a ragtag group of people that happened to be fishermen, right? Like the backwoods guys, the guys that worked with their hands for a living, the construction workers, the blue collar workers, that see this guy that has just been robbing people and they look at him like, Jesus? Really? Really? you expect us to walk this country with you and him? Like that he is now a part of this thing that we do? I don't know about that. This doesn't seem to make sense. This is a, mm. but it wasn't just fishermen. There were zealots that were a part of this group. Now, Now, zealots were like revolutionaries. Okay, they believed that they could take Israel back by force. That they could quite literally, like like, through revolution, through complete and total revolution, that they could rescue Israel, that it could be free, that it could be liberated from everyone and everything that was around them. that, That Israel could be back to the way that it was way back in the day when they were free as a people, as a community. These zealots actually walked around with little daggers on the side of their hips or down at their legs and they, they hid them. And kind of some of the legend that goes in history is what they would do is they would, like in a dark alley, they would come up behind a Roman centurion and they would kill him and just lay him bare and then walk away. In fact, when, they, when these zealots kind of stormed the, uh, uh, King Herod's place in Massa, when they, when they kind of stormed the palace to try and liberate Israel from King Herod and from all of the Roman centurions that are around, it took this small band of revolutionaries nine months to be put down. Nine months. Months. This was the kind of passion and ingenuity and military thinking and guerrilla style warfare that these guys had at their disposal. And not only that, but these these group of zealots believed that it was better to die than to be put than than to be enslaved. And so what they did before they started this massive campaign, they they chose ten men, this all according to Josephus, which is really fascinating history, by the way. They they chose ten men that at the end of the battle if they were for sure to be destroyed and defeated these 10 men their role their job was to walk around and kill all of the other zealots leaving one left who would then kill the last remaining zealot and then himself this is the type of passion that they had this is the type of uh, like zeal zealot, zeal, that they had for Israel. And they've got a man that is now in their midst. That is a traitor. That is the man that is there with his great mega hat. Make Israel great again, right? In their midst. And they look at him. They look at him like, ah, what is this guy doing here? What's really interesting is Matthew's story as it occurs in Matthew chapter 9, it, it's not just, it's not just the, the zealots and the fishermen that are floored by what's happening. But when you look at Matthew's story, which starts in Matthew chapter 9 verse 9, when you look at his story and how it comes about, it's sandwiched in between miracles There's a miracle right before it where Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. And then shortly after, Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. And then he heals the blind and the mute. All the while in the middle is Matthew's story saying, it is an absolute miracle that I get to be a part of this thing. Because I am the unlikeliest of person. I'm the unlikeliest of individual that would be welcomed and not arms of shame, but arms of love, arms that literally wrapped themselves around me and pulled me in to the point that not only am I a follower of Jesus, but I'm an apostle. I'm, I'm one of the people that is now charged with and responsible for carrying out this gospel, this good news about the kingdom into the world. Matthew is such a fascinating story and how he, how he is welcomed in. Now, we don't know how long it took, right, before Matthew actually was welcomed in, right? He might have been the guy that was at the end of the table while the other 11 sat with their backs to him and said, I don't think so. And Matthew would chime in to the conversation, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember when Jesus did that. It was cool, right? Yeah, that was awesome. (laughs) Right? He's the outcast. He's the guy that's pushed your side. But we do know that three and a half years later, Matthew was still at it. And not only three and a half years later, but the 30, 40, 50 years after that, when he finally pens the gospel of Matthew, when one of the political outcasts of this Jesus movement pens a story that we still read Today, Because he was welcomed in at some point. He was shown love and grace and mercy and care at some point. At some point, the disciples entered into his framework and they developed relationships. They developed care for one another. They understood his story. They listened well to where he was coming from and why he thought the things that he did, why it was that he became a tax collector, why it was that he worked for Rome. And they finally found out that, oh, maybe it's just because he thought that's what was going to make that country great again, that that's what was going to fulfill the promises that God had laid out for them. Maybe. Maybe. You see, and and here's the thing, oftentimes we want to say, I, I hear it a lot, especially in the online forums, Jesus wasn't political. Jesus cared Zippo about politics. Jesus doesn't want us to engage with politics because he didn't have anything to say about it. Matthew might say differently. In fact, I'm pretty sure that Matthew would say differently. In fact, I would say that the zealots would say differently because they gave up their zealotry and they became zealots for Jesus in his kingdom, and his gospel. Jesus was a political figure that charted a new course of what it meant to engage with politics well a politic that centers ourselves around who God is and how God engages with the world, about who Jesus is at his very core. And Jesus maps out a new way for us to have good, healthy, constructive conversations with people that are full of grace, that are full of love, that are full of mercy, that are, yes, even perhaps full of joy, that we can enjoy the difference amongst us as we have conversation that pushes and pulls and pushes and pulls. He showed us how. And we get to be a different people. Or or as Peter says in one of his epistles, and I think it's 1 Peter, that we get to be a peculiar people. That we look really different. We don't look blue and we don't look red. We look like Jesus people. And that's peculiar because Jesus doesn't agree up and down with any sort of political side. He just doesn't. He might, at some points, agree more with one side than he does with another. And at others, agree more with another side than he does with that first side. It, it bounces and it pushes and it pulls because Jesus is trying to craft and form his people into a way that engage this world with what the kingdom of God looks like. That's what he's pushing us to. He wants us to be a different People. A peculiar people. Because perfect love. Perfect love is what he calls us to. Perfect love. Tim Keller, again, he said the exact same thing. You can't disagree with somebody by just beating them from the outside. You have to come into their framework. We have to step into relationship with others. You critique them from, the in, from inside their own framework. You don't critique them for not having your framework. Eventually, I stepped into the immigration guy's framework. Eventually, I began to understand that it wasn't just he believed in invaders, but he was actually economically scared. He had lost his job to cheaper immigrant labor because he was a construction worker. And he was scared about what that meant, not only for him moving forward, but later on down the road. When I began to understand that, I was like, oh, I get your fear. I get what it is that that is driving this conversation for you. When I step into conversations with those who have different beliefs than me about guns, I understand that a lot of time it has to do with protection of their family. That they are truly fearful of the bumps in the night. That they're scared that, that someone is going to invade their home. And do unspeakable things to their family, and we could say we can we can sit back and say that is an unrational fear. You are absolutely ridiculous. Do you know? Do you know the statistics on how random that sort of thing is, and the fact that you have a small arsenal fit only for a militia in your basement, and you think that they're going to? We we can quote all the statistics at them that we want. It's not going to change their mind but if we step into relationship with them and truly understand why they think what they think we can have a different dialogue with them and it doesn't become about changing their mind it becomes about loving each other well about being a people that are pro- like on a journey together processing this world and this life together we live in an age of outrage We live in a world that at the drop of a hat, outrage not only comes, but explodes around us. This is the world that we live in. And Jesus calls us to be a different people, to be slow to anger, and slow to speak, to listen well to what it is that others understand this world to be. And maybe in that, Maybe in that space, we can find more common ground to which we can move forward with. You see, oftentimes, our journey in the political red versus blue is to find uniformity. We're always trying to find and pull people to our side. And by pulling them, we reach out our hand and we grab them by the throat. We pull them over like, you're going to be on this side and you're going to like it. They're like, ah about that. And then they just fight us over here, right? Like, it just doesn't create anything healthy. We, we look for uniformity. But unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. Unity comes about when different people from different persuasions and different backgrounds still come together in a space of constructive dialogue, of constructive hope, of constructive purpose moving forward together in this world. I do wonder sometimes, because of the Seattle bubble that we live in, the third largest bubble of blue, I do wonder what it would look like for us someday if somebody walked through that door and they were wearing a MAGA hat. Like what our response would be to them. I don't know. I don't know what it would be. I don't know if we would look at them and be like, and then just kind of like make sure that they sat in that back corner all by themselves. And when we get up afterwards and hang out with each other, we would just keep them over there in that corner completely secluded and kept, kept away. Or, or would we just start shouting at them and yelling at them and hurling insults at them? You can't wear that in here. No hats in church. Like all of a sudden getting like super crazy traditional on them. Just to suit our own ends, right? What would we do if that person came in here? I don't know. But it's something that I want us to wrestle with. and something that I want us to think about. Because here's the first thing that we have to do as a people. We have, to, we have to, to step out of this age of outrage within our own selves, this red versus blue. We have to be quick to forgive others for the things that they say the things that they actually believe. We would be quick to forgive them for that because oftentimes it's not directed at us. Oftentimes it has nothing to do with us. We haven't been wronged by what they believe. We haven't been hurt by what they believe. They just believe it. We would to be quick to forgive. We have to actually step in to conversation with them, step into a generative sort of conversation that is just about getting to know the individual getting to know the human, getting to spend time with them and allowing them to be changed and transformed by the work of Jesus in our midst. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 3rd Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.